Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened. Old Testament, 1 Kings 3.16. There are these two women, one whose baby has died, the other whose baby is still alive. Each claims the living baby as her own. They go to the new king, Solomon, and ask him to sort it all out. In the night, this woman's child died because she lay upon it. Wherefore, she removed my son from beside me while I slept and laid her dead child against my bosom. She lies. I do not lie. This is from the somewhat less than classic film, Solomon and Sheba. The women are shushed by King Solomon, played by Yule Brenner, in whatever they use for spray tan in 1959. The living child is mine. The dead is yours. The dead is yours. The living mine. Bring the infant forward. A guard puts the baby down, and then Yule Brenner tells him to draw his sword. Divide the child into two parts. Give half to the one woman, half to the other. Many close-ups of people looking horrified here. Oh, no! If it must be, give the child to her, that it may not be slain. Divide it! It shall be neither hers nor mine. As nonfiction, it's not totally believable. I mean, why would either woman want to see the baby cut in half? Even the liar wants a live baby, not a dead one. But Solomon's such a good character, no one cares. Take your son, mother. He's surely yours. Would rather have surrendered him to another than to seem harmed. Now at last I have seen a judgment of Solomon, and your wisdom amazes me. That's Sheba. The ladies do love the wisdom, even if it isn't all that wise. Solomon's trick only works if the baby thief is suddenly happy to see it killed and stupid enough to show it. Otherwise, he's got nothing, worse than nothing. To save face, he'd probably need to go through with it and cut a totally innocent baby in half. And then where does it leave him? as the guy who began his reign as the king of Israel by cutting babies in half. Still, if referees have an origin story, this is it. 
and it's got two ideas buried inside. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. That's the last line of the story, and the first idea. The job of the referee is so hard to do that doing it really well is a sign of divine inspiration. Another idea is sort of taken for granted right from the start, that the job needs to be done at all, that when two squabbling human beings go looking for justice, they should turn to some other human being to act as a neutral third party, as if human beings weren't the problem in the first place. But people are just no good at resolving their own conflicts. Any parent of more than one child knows this. So does every teacher, lawyer, and cop. We just take it for granted that we need legal systems, both formal and informal. And we just assume that some totally innocent third party will want to help us to resolve even our most petty disputes. We never ask, why should someone with no real interest in our conflicts be better at refereeing them than we are? And we also don't ask, what actually makes someone good at this job no one wants? I'm Michael Lewis, and this is Against the Rules, a show about the attack on the authority of referees in American life and what that's doing to our idea of fairness. A few months ago, I was at a bar in Washington, D.C., with a friend of mine who's a sports writer, Rob Nyer. He's the opposite of what you think of when you think of sports writer. Quiet, well-mannered, almost shy. I suppose he's a fan, but he's never fanatical. He's like his writing. Cool, analytical, detached. But then at the bar, his cell phone rang. He looked at the number, got all agitated. All, I hate my life. I hate these people who keep calling me. But I have to take this one. I'd never seen him like this. He spent 20 minutes pacing around outside on his phone. Came back a total wreck. Angry, distracted, incapable of pleasure. It was this new job he'd taken, he said, as commissioner of an amateur baseball league. I would travel around, visit every team, 11 ballparks, which is, you know, for most baseball fans, that's sort of a dream come true. Why would I not agree to all of that? It was known as the West Coast League. The teams were all owned by rich guys. They had persuaded Rob to become the league's public face, its symbolic leader. These rich guys loved the game. Rob loved the game. What could go wrong? Well, it turned out that these owners argued amongst themselves. A lot. Their coaches and players fought with each other, too. And everyone fought with the umpires. They expected Rob, as commissioner, to get in the middle of all these fights and referee them. But the rich guys hated to be refereed unless the call went their way. That's what the phone call had been about in the Washington bar. Yet another dispute. The umpire reported that the head coach uh, poked him with his finger. And this was the second time that this head coach had been suspended. The first time he had sprayed, uh, whether inadvertently or not, the rules uh, don't make a distinction, sprayed with saliva um, an umpire. 
So he was suspended at that time. And then just a couple of weeks later, um, uh, he reportedly, according to the umpire's report, poked the umpire. Unfortunately, the video was was inconclusive. So I felt like I had to take the the umpire's uh, report uh, at, at face value. Rob suspended the head coach again, thus pissing off the owner, who blamed the whole thing on the umpire, with whom he now thought Rob was in some sort of secret alliance. For his part, Rob couldn't see what he'd done to deserve this. No one asked if he had some special talent for refing other people's disputes. They just sort of assumed he'd figure it out, which he was trying to do. Um, you have to, as a league, you, you have to have an incredibly compelling reason to dispute the report or the integrity of an umpire. Otherwise, you just lose control. You, it's an anarchy. That night in the bar, that was when Rob had realized that he was losing control. That in this amateur baseball league, it was anarchy. I had just discovered two days after the fact that the, the head coach actually did not serve his suspension. Uh, so, yes, I mean, I was apoplectic because uh, you, what am I supposed to do now? So what did you do to him? Uh, I suspended the owner for three games and, and levied a, uh, a relatively small fine. And how did he respond to that? Not well. No, not well at all. The owner had screamed at him, accused him of somehow being on the take from another team's owner. But Rob was just doing his job, enforcing the rules, which sounds simple, right? I mean, Solomon did it. But it turns out there's a great deal of, of, of ambiguity in the rules. For example, uh, there is a rule against prolonging an argument after an ejection. But there's no definition of prolonging. And now I have to go read all these things and watch video and try to make some sort of reasonable determination. And almost in, invariably, uh, neither side is happy ultimately with my decision. What kind of person would enjoy being in the middle of this? <laughs> well, I, my it's a good question. I keep getting this sneaking suspicion that there are at least a few people in the league who actually enjoy conflict, who thrive on it. Um, I don't know if that's true. Uh, I, I, maybe they can't help themselves, and maybe the conflict makes them as miserable as it makes me. I, I don't know. And I've actually tried to reason with people, these pe people who, who, who seem to enjoy it, um, because I, there's a part of me that thinks they can't be having fun yelling at me, can they? Of course they can. People love to scream at refs. They do it all the time. And the same people who love to scream at refs also just sort of assume that the ref's job is to sit there and take it. I told Rob all this, but it didn't seem to make him any happier. So I asked him, was there anything he liked about his new job? Oh, no. And why not? How, at the end of the day, how do you, how do you feel good knowing that someone is upset with you and might be questioning your integrity? Rob had clearly never been a ref. And he was learning that he wasn't cut out for it. I probably couldn't be an umpire because my first reaction would probably be to start uh, fighting, physically <laughs> fighting. So you'd just be out there, you'd be out there throwing sledgehammer punches at the people who came up to argue with you? Well, I wouldn't be good at throwing punches, but yes, I would be throwing punches. The first time someone got six inches from my face and started screaming, 
profanities at me, I would lose it. I mean, I, I have road rage issues. Not that I've ever done anything, but, but I have that impulse. So they need to find a different kind of person to do this job. Well, I don't want to fire myself, but I would recommend someone else. Yeah, sure. I've watched Rob work for years on a book and overcome all sorts of obstacles. But just a few months into his career as a referee, he's already looking to quit. Hand the job to someone else. But to whom? I mean that generally. Not just in baseball. In all the places where disputes need resolving. The job obviously needs doing. Maybe more than ever. But what sort of person can do it? As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 
AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Back in 1979, a huge number of Vietnam vets filed a lawsuit against Monsanto and Dow Chemical and other companies that had manufactured an herbicide called Agent Orange. Millions of gallons of the stuff had been dumped onto the Vietnamese jungles to kill the plant cover used by the Viet Cong. Thousands of vets exposed to Agent Orange believed it was responsible for their various health problems. They didn't have much evidence, but the companies wanted to settle just to end the whole thing. That effort kicked around the courts for five years, but no one could find a solution that would satisfy everyone. Then the judge decided to see if he could find a solution outside the American legal system to appoint an outside mediator. Special master, the courts called it. And I just got a a telephone call out of the clear blue from a federal judge in Brooklyn, New York. Did he explain to you why he thought you'd be good at that job? Yes. He said, um, you've got the personality for it. The young lawyer's name was, and is, Ken Feinberg. A case that went unresolved for half a decade, he settled in six weeks. A legend was born. It changed my life. It changed my professional life. You see, once I got Agent Orange resolved, and it was on the front page of every newspaper in the United States, I started getting a flood of calls. Was there any any experience in your life before this that was like this, where you could say, oh, I've been in this kind of situation before? No, I had been in high school and college. I had been an actor on the stage. I had thought that I might end up on Broadway. When I went to law school in 1970, there was no course in mediation or arbitration. There was nothing like that. But there was this role that needed to be played in American life. It just hadn't been written yet. Feinberg created it by sheer force of personality. He wound up running the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund and met personally with the families of the 3,000 people who were killed. He ran the fund to compensate victims of the BP oil spill. After the 2008 financial crisis, the United States Congress gave Ken Feinberg sole authority to determine the pay of the CEOs of the banks that had been bailed out by government money. And that's just the start. The Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, when the terrorist attack, they raised and asked me to distribute $30 million. The Harvest 
Las Vegas shootings from the Mandalay Hotel, mm-hmm. and I killed 59 people. They raised $30 million, distribute that money. Sandy Hook, they asked me to go up to Sandy Hook and decide how should we distribute the money. The Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue shootings, the next day, uh, the Federation of Jewish Philanthropies in, 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 in Pittsburgh called. How do we distribute this money? It is astounding. 100,000 people after those Boston Marathon bombings sent in money, unsolicited, you know? And Mayor Menino and Governor Patrick said, Ken, you're from Massachusetts. You grew up here. We want you to design and administer a compensation program for dead, 240 runners or uh, observers at the finish line injured, 16 single amputees, two double amputees, 61 million, distribute the money. The mass shooting in a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. The thousands of disputes after Hurricane Katrina between insurance companies and homeowners who recovered for wind but not flood damage. And they retained me to set up a mediation program. Any homeowner who wants to participate voluntarily, come on in. Feinberg will be the neutral. The neutral. This magical, extra-legal character. This gifted referee who drops into a situation where people are traumatized. A situation that also might easily become ugly and public. And he resolves it. Quietly. Privately. And hardly anyone says anything about it. Or even knows who he is or just how much power he's wielded. That's why victims advocate John Fia wants everyone who's eligible to sign up. We have lost 42 people this year alone to 9-11 related cancers. This will provide money to victims' families. In all of these programs, you have some discretion, but you have to exercise it wisely because the public and the victims are all circling. And how you strike the balance between paying people enough for their loss, example, 9-11, and not paying them too much. So you couldn't, so in doling out the money, you couldn't actually reflect just pure expected earnings. You couldn't. You couldn't. The law wisely said, and Feinberg shall consider expected earnings, and then there's another clause that says, and he will see to it that justice is done. Well, that gave me the opening to bring down the top and bring up the bottom so that the gap between the stockbroker who died and the busboy who died was not too wide. What was the difference, the monetary difference, between what would have happened if you'd just done a a raw, cold calculation of lost earnings and what you actually did? Oh, I think some people, I don't know how many, but I think some widows or widowers, I should say, would have maybe got... $35 $35 million in taxpayer money, which I reduced to no more than six. And what about on the other end? And on the other end, some people might have got $200,000, and I increased the bottom to up over a million dollars. He turned $35 million into six for the family of a bond trader, and $200,000 into a million for the family of a busboy. All by himself, for free. Feinberg refused to be paid for his work settling the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund. He doesn't take money after mass shootings either. 
He just feels it's his duty to do the job. And hardly anybody complains about the results. Of course, plaintiff lawyers don't like it. But about the only principled objection to Ken Feinberg comes from legal scholars who worry that his success makes a mockery of the legal system. Like this guy. I'm Eric Posner, and I'm a professor of law at the University of Chicago. In his writing, Posner's raised questions about the role that Ken Feinberg plays. So the legal system doesn't always reflect people's ordinary moral intuitions about how disputes should be solved. So give me an example, some, like a, a concrete example or two of, of outcomes the legal system might generate that would violate common sense notions of fairness. So suppose um, you're driving your automobile and you run over a wealthy person and uh, kill him. His family sues. Um, you may have to pay damages equal to his lost income, which could be millions of dollars. And then uh, someone else runs over a poor person and uh, the poor person's family sues. And the, the, the damages that are awarded might just be a few hundred thousand dollars or, or less. Just like what might have happened after 9-11 if Feinberg hadn't been there. Because of this legal rule that compensates victims and their families based on their lost income, that values people's lives by how much money they make. And it looks quite unfair because it's as if the law is saying that the wealthy person's life is worth a lot and the poor person's life is, is worth uh, not that much. And that's very much inconsistent with uh, our moral intuitions about equality. This disconnect between the common sense notion of what's fair and what the legal system produces is allowed to sort of chug along until there's a big spotlight thrown on it like there was in 9-11. Right. So the legal system can chug along as long as you know people aren't paying too much attention to it. But when um, there's some kind of massive uh, public spotlight on the particular conflict that the law is supposed to deal with, people see how it operates out of context and, and they can get very angry. I love this idea that the only reason the legal system works is that people don't pay attention to it. That when they do pay attention to it, they're shocked by its unfairness. That the stability of the entire society depends on people not looking too closely at its foundation. Because when they do, they get seriously pissed off. And then the system, you know, our system of law and politics has to address this anger in some way. Uh, this anger is a, is a political problem that the legal system is really not set up to address. And that's when Ken Feinberg appears. When the anger hits a certain point. When people are chucking beer cans onto the field and deciding the game is rigged. Feinberg descends by parachute and the arena goes quiet. And just about everybody accepts his judgment. And just about everybody agrees it's fair. So, so what, what, what Ken Feinberg really is is a political solution. That's exactly what he is. He's a, he's a political solution. A legal scholar looks at Ken Feinberg and asks, why do we turn to this one guy time and again to dispense justice? And why is that justice so obviously different from what our legal system might supply? I'm interested in a different question. I look at Ken Feinberg and ask, how the hell does he do it? I mean, how does any citizen of this fractious, unreasonable, entitled, moronic country persuaded to come together and agree on anything? 
is anybody asking how you're doing that? Well, I don't really think that, that most people who ask me to do this, they don't really pro very much as to how it gets done. They, they like the results. Right. The time has come to ask him how he does it. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before Nerd Wallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. So I can see you're a talker, but I loved your book on Wall Street, the one on Wall Street. Which one? The Big Short? I went to visit Ken Feinberg at his apartment in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Nice place. Not a money person's place. Not extravagant. His wife, Dee Dee's with us, on the sofa beside us. They're both in their 70s, their kids all grown up and gone. They've earned the right to move to some beach. 
let the world find another referee. But they haven't moved. Since we last spoke, I'm now resolving all of these Catholic priest abuse cases in New York and Pennsylvania, where the Cardinal mm-hmm. Dolan in New York and the Archbishop in Philadelphia came and basically said to me, you know, this is one situation where the Jews have to bail out the Catholics. And we've been resolving all these cases. Just how you want to spend your golden years. Refing the dispute between the Catholic Church and however many Americans have been abused by its employees. But this is clearly Feinberg's idea of, I was about to say fun, but that's not quite right. It's more like his idea of where he needs to be. Like Feinberg GPS. If at any given moment, you want to know where Ken Feinberg is, just go looking for the most upsetting public controversy. You'll find him in the middle of it, as the neutral. The church came and said, basically, will you meet with individual victims voluntarily? If they don't want to, they don't have to. And we'll pay for it. We'll compensate them for the, for the damage we did. Horrible damage. I mean, penetration, sodomy, rape, going back 40 years or more. And we've resolved virtually all of the cases in New York. How many were there? Well, we know voluntarily that 1,500 people came forward in, in five dioceses in New York. Oh. And 1,497 of the 1,500 we resolved. The victims don't have to accept Feinberg's judgment, and yet they do. But why? I mean, why do these controversies always find him or he them? And how is it that he always, and I mean always, gets to a resolution? Well, I think that uh, there are a couple of um, characteristics. Don't underestimate the importance of empathy. The perception that you're trying to get into that person's shoes and understand the damage. And I think the ability to listen, I've learned the hard way, don't try and express too much empathy. It is perceived as hollow. You're not in my shoes, Mr. Feinberg. You're a hired gun. You can empathize and express support without saying things like I've said in my early years, I know how you feel. I said that to one person who lost a son at the World at the Pentagon, 9-11 attacks. 83-year-old man buried his son, and he said, Mr. Feinberg, you're telling me you know how I feel? You have no idea how I feel, and it sounds pretentious. And I'm just telling you, you got a tough job, but in the future. People like you listening to them. They do. They it's do. very odd for someone who talks. That's right. Because you're a talker, too. You learn. Right? Yes. So most people who are talkers don't listen. You learn to listen. Sometimes I think that all people who are really good at what they do are like magicians. Asking them how they do it is rude. They don't really want to tell you. They shouldn't tell you. Because if they tell you, they ruin the trick. But Ken Feinberg, he took money away from guys who ran Wall Street banks. I don't know how anyone does that. I thought that in cutting the pay of the CFO of Citibank, I would go to the CFO and say, "Uh, you don't need 
three cars, and you don't need a home on Long Island in the summer, and therefore I'm going to cut your pay by uh, 80%. And you get pushback, I figured, about who are you to tell me what I need. You get victimology. I love these Wall Street victims. You get the CFO saying, you're cutting me by 80%. You have made a determination of my self-worth. When I look in the mirror in the morning, I'm not thinking about two cars. If you cut my pay, you are telling me I'm not worth what I was getting. They said this kind of thing? Oh, my goodness. This was a curveball. This was a curveball, you see. It's not about material gain. If you dare come to me and say, I'm only worth 20% of what I was worth last year, you have made a determination that my life is meaningless that um, I'm only worth a fraction of what I thought I'm worth. What's your response to this? I'm not a rabbi or a priest. You kind of are. No, no. Yeah, Feinberg doesn't want to go there. Part of his job, as he sees it, is to resist the temptation to make anything personal, to expect some connection with the people on the other end of his work. I put it this way. Never take on one of these assignments and expect, thank you, gratitude, appreciation. It never, ever happens. Never. The most you can hope for is resignation. And why is that? Well, because, you know, if you're worried about stuff like that, you're going to split the baby. You can't worry about how you'll be perceived post-mediation. Just like a referee in a basketball game can't be worried about how the, a team or a player will feel about that referee based on a call that he made or she made. You just have to do your job and have enough sense of self. He's been doing this work for 40 years now. He's interacted with countless victims and perpetrators of tragedies. It feels incredibly personal. But no one stays in touch with Ken Feinberg. Uh, one 9-11 victim sent me flowers on the 9-11 date for about 15 years. One. And I think it's very important to deliberately push people away and say, this is a horrible chapter. Move on as best you can. It's not easy, and I'm not m- minimizing it. But move on as best you can. Don't look back to this program or to me or the money. Just move on. and um, So you push them away. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, deliberately push them away. I got to say, I don't feel pushed away, at least not sitting on Feinberg's couch. But I notice he's got me on the edge of my seat, wondering when he's going to erupt and fill the air with exclamation points. He's obviously got several traits that make him good at what he does. I can think of at least four, none of which he mentions until I pester him a bit. This is our second interview, by the way, so I'm actually re-pestering him. And you told me, it was a throwaway line at the end of our, the, the interview we did, that you actually had refereed, uh, you'd umpired baseball games in the eighth grade, maybe, and refereed basketball games in high school. 
uh, and I couldn't believe you buried that. That's you buried the lead, as they say in the newsroom. When you were a kid, how did you discover this interest in being in that role? He likes being in charge. That's Ken's wife, Dee Dee. She knows the first quality, ego. He likes being in charge. <laughs> yeah. But but he but there's a but you've got to be shrewd about how you're in charge because otherwise people take away the privilege. Those aren't exclusive qualities. Right. Right. No, they aren't exclusive qualities. But you've got if you don't pick the teams fairly, you won't be allowed to pick the teams next time. Second quality, political sense, shrewdness. A kind of ESP about disputes. A nose for those that can be refereed and those that cannot. For example, somebody says, you know, why don't you get the, um, the Israelis and the Arabs to sit down and you can get them to yes in the Middle East? And I would say to, I say to people, that's not true. I, I wouldn't take on that assignment. You cannot get to yes in that assignment. Because for one thing, you can't get the right people at the table to get to yes. You sit down, as I read the newspapers, you sit down with a group of Arabs and say, we're going to get to yes with Israel. And the Arabs may say, yes, they can't deliver their own group, people. So, I mean, that's a a, a typical assignment where I would say, no, thank you. Ken, why don't you mediate resolution of congressional polarization? Let's get uh, in a room, and why don't you help them get to yes? Possible. Couldn't get to yes. They wouldn't want me. Actually, they would want him. He just wouldn't want them. Because in those situations, he'd lose something more than his time. He'd lose a sense of who he is. That's the third quality Feinberg has. A kind of total immersion in the role of Ken Feinberg. How many kids do you have? Three. Okay. And how, they're, how old are they? Today? Yeah. Uh, 41, 39, and 36. So when they were little, when they were growing up, what role did he play in disputes in the household? You got it. You nailed it right on the head. Um, I was I was the mom who stayed at home with the kids, and he was the one who just gr- walked in the house at the end of the day, and I had him settle disputes. <laughs> he, We'd sit at the dinner table, and we would hold court. Was he good? Court. Yeah, he was good. So, you know, what's interesting in this is I think it might, that I shy from conflict because I have, like, two modes. It's either... We're in a fist fight or we're just getting along. I don't have the, I'm very bad at the middle ground. My wife's on me about this all the time. Black so and white, no gray. Right. And, and so it's, it's, I don't like people shouting at me. I don't like people upset with me. I respond very badly to it. So when I'm put in the middle of a dispute, I don't usually respond that well to it. Um, I have trouble remaining neutral and keeping myself out of it. And it sounds like you just don't. It sounds like you really don't. You know, when I try to draw Ken Feinberg out about himself, he's either already got a story at hand or he acts like he hasn't heard the question. So we're lucky his wife's here. On the flip side, we've been married 43 years. We've never had a fight. I've had a lot of arguments, but we have never had one. You've never had a fight. Because he doesn't engage. No. You've never had a fight. Out of the way, but there won't be confrontation. No. No it's a lot of self-control on his part, I would think. There can't be many married couples in America who've been married no, no, no. more than a few years. You're, you're not, I'm arguing. I'm getting agitated and raising my voice and, you know, I just can't. And he won't give you anything back. 
to enter into a dispute as a participant, even with his family, would be a violation of his inner nature, or at least some pact he's made with himself, to stay removed, apart, the neutral, a character who's maybe just a little bit feared. That's the fourth quality Feinberg has, a willingness to intimidate, not with force, but with force of character. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Okay, so it was my idea to have Ken Feinberg read the Bible. But it's a funny choice of words. They feared the king. Not because he threatened them, but because of what his disapproval said about them. Because he's righteous. Righteousness. It's not really something you can learn. If you're looking to hire someone to be a mediator, what qualities do you look for? I mean, I take a minority view, I think. I believe that mediators are born, not made. I don't think you can train somebody to be an effective mediator. They either have the talent and the personality or they don't. Either the wisdom of God is in them or it isn't. So we're, we're doing a podcast on referees and pe- people who, oh. mediators and people who kind of resolve conflicts. Yeah. And so we were, to, we were here for recess to talk to the fifth graders because they're the ones who were, you know, oh, yeah. in battle. Were yeah, you, I was in fifth grade last year. I assume yeah. if you're in sixth grade this year. But, but the, did, you, did you, were you the kind of person who got involved in other people's conflicts um, last year? I mean, it depends on what we were doing. Uh, I would often solve the conflicts if I was playing. Because, like, that's just what I like to do, but, you know. So yeah. you, you but like, it, you it like depends the... if I'm, yeah, I do like to do it. But it depends if I am playing the sport. Like, if I'm playing, if I'm not playing, I'll just, like, stay out of it. Just because, like, I, I don't know why. <laughs> so because. what do you like about the peace process and getting involved in two people who are violating it? Um, I mean, I guess it's just, um, it's just... Um, I just feel proud because then it's like seeing their faces are like, okay, okay, yeah, you know. You actually, it actually works. Yeah, it works sometimes. I'm Michael Lewis. Thanks for listening to Against the Rules. Against the Rules is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. The show's produced by Audrey Dilling and Catherine Giradeau with research assistance from Zoe Oliver-Gray and Beth Johnson. Our editor is Julia Barton. Mia Lobel is our executive producer. Our theme was composed by Nick Bertel with additional scoring by Seth Samuel, mastering by Jason Gambrell. Our show was recorded by Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. Special thanks to our founders, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. 
NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.